Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. On this vote, the ayes are 232, the nays are 197. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. I sadly, with her heart broken over what this means to our country, of a president who would incite insurrection, will sign the engrossment Just one week after he encouraged his supporters to attack the U.S. Capitol and disrupt Congress as they tallied Joe Biden's electoral win, President Donald Trump was impeached by the House. But if we thought that horrific attack on our Capitol and our democracy would lead to more thoughtful and reflective debate on the House floor, well, we were mistaken. It's not just about impeachment anymore, it's about canceling, as I've said. Canceling the president and anyone that disagrees with them. The criminals who stormed the Capitol that day acted on their own volition. They are responsible for their actions. Well, so what? That's called politics. If we impeached every politician who gave a fiery speech to a crowd of partisans, this Capitol would be deserted. That's what the president did. That is all he did. Some Republicans acknowledged the role Trump played in encouraging the attack, but argued that impeachment would divide rather than heal the country. After the traumatic events of last week, the majority should be taking steps to unite us. Instead, they are only dividing us further. Emotions are still high. We need to be focused on toning down the rhetoric. Privately, many Republican members said that while they supported impeachment, they were worried about their physical safety, as well as political fallout from going up against a president who remains popular with the base. In the end, only 10 Republicans joined every House Democrat in voting to impeach Donald Trump, making him the first president in history to be impeached twice. Not surprisingly, President Trump has downplayed his role in the insurrection. The impeachment hoax is a continuation of the greatest and most vicious witch hunt in the history of our country and is causing tremendous anger and division and pain far greater than most people will ever understand, which is very dangerous for the USA, especially at this very tender time. Barred from his favorite form of communication, Twitter, President Trump has been uncharacteristically quiet. This has left those of us in Washington, for the first time in four years, unaware of his mood or his priorities. All this as a timetable for the impeachment trial in the Senate remains unclear. Meanwhile, we're just days away from the inauguration of Joe Biden. But Washington doesn't feel particularly festive. Most of downtown Washington has been boarded up, streets are shut down, the National Mall will be closed to the public for the event. Airbnb canceled all reservations in the nation's capital during what is normally a very busy week. The Capitol building has been militarized to protect members of Congress from ongoing threats. Security has been tightened up as well within the building. This includes members of Congress who are now subject to security screenings when they enter the House chamber, something that some Republican House members refused to do. Joining me to discuss all of this and more is Annie Linsky, a national political reporter at The Washington Post, Anita Kumar, White House correspondent for Politico, and Sarah Weyer, congressional reporter at the L.A. Times. Thank you all for joining me. Sarah, I want to start with you and the fallout from the attack on the Capitol. So this week, we saw additional security measures installed outside the House floor, some Republican members of the House refusing to walk through metal detectors. Talk to us about what's going on here and what this means really for this ability for Congress to kind of, quote unquote, unify as we go into a new session of Congress. 
Well, for those who have been on the Hill before, uh, you know, they're used to seeing lawmakers, you know, just walk around metal detectors when they walk into the building. They don't go through metal detectors normally when they enter the chamber. And that changed this week. Um, Now, every person who enters the chamber is supposed to go through a metal detector. And it's really caused some divisions. Uh, Republicans feel like they weren't consulted before it went into place. And there was some, some yelling, some standoffs the day that they went into place with members just trying to push by or refusing to go through them. Nancy Pelosi has announced that there will be a rule change starting next week that lawmakers can actually be fined $5,000 for refusing to go through the metal detectors. I mean, what does this tell us, though, about members fearing their own safety from within? People had to always go through metal detectors, visitors to the Capitol, to get into buildings. But This seems to be suggesting that many folks are worried that their own colleagues are a threat to them. Yeah, there does seem to be some some mistrust at this point. And a lot of the Democratic members have talked publicly about the day of the attack and fear that the Republican members might have been speaking with some of the the rioters and giving away location. I know AOC specifically brought that up. And so this is, you know, kind of feels like an overflow of that. The members don't seem to trust each other right now. Anita, I want to go now to you and go to the White House. And it has felt very odd these last few days here to not have President Trump's Twitter feed constantly pinging at us. I mean, the last four years, our politics has been dictated by that stream of his his Twitter, and it drove our news cycle, gave us, you know, insights to his mindset. What does your reporting tell you about how the president is processing this moment? And what do you know about how he plans to spend his final days in the White House? I know we've heard reports about more pardons coming. Is he going to give a final interview, final address to the country? Well, Amy, you're so right. He has been so incredibly quiet. He has not been the Donald Trump he was for the previous four years. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he's given three statements, really, uh, in the last week since the riots, and all have been very much uh, prepared in advance, written uh, down. You know, he's reading a teleprompter. He's on camera. These are video statements. We just haven't seen the old Donald Trump. From what I'm hearing from people, he is... Um, at the White House, really just communicating with a small circle of aides that have been around him since the beginning. So that's Dan Scavino, who uh, people may know as the head of his social media, John McEntee, the head of his personnel office, his chief of staff, Mark Meadows is with him. And of course, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who's always been his top top aide and his daughter is also there, Ivanka Trump. But he's really just surrounded him with that small group. And he is, you know, reading the New York Times every morning. He is watching television all day and he's really trying to process what people are saying. Uh, you mentioned that he has downplayed his role and he is. And he he sort of, as someone's told me, not really believing what the reaction has been mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, we've seen four years of of controversy after controversy and he survived them all. This is the one that he appears to not be surviving. People have turned on him that have supported him that entire time. And he's sort of processing that and trying to understand how that that came about. Uh, What we're hearing about for the next few days, we have not heard that he's traveling anywhere, even though some of his Republican allies have encouraged him to do a little bit of a victory lap on some of his accomplishments. So you saw him go out to Texas to the border wall. Uh, Some people wanted him to go to talk about the vaccine, talk about the economy a little bit. We think he's going to stay there. He's probably going to leave town on Wednesday morning before the inauguration and go to Florida to his resort there at Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, it is pretty amazing, Anita, that we're in the middle of the deadliest moment here in the pandemic. And and we have yet to hear from the president about this. Annie, I want to go to you. Um, uh, talking about the incoming Biden administration. We've got a lot to talk about. But the first thing I want you to address is this impeachment issue and the fact that the Senate trial is not going to start until Joe Biden will be officially installed as president of the United States. How is the 
president's team reacting to this? And um, what are their expectations for balancing this trial along with all the things that the Biden administration needs to get done, especially in the Senate with hearings and confirmations over these next couple weeks? Yeah, um, Amy, that's a great question. Um, the president-elect, um, President-elect Joe Biden, has um, for the last year, you know, conducted his campaign, and this is how he's conducted his transition as well, as sort of a very steady force that just does not get too um, exercised over what is happening in Washington. And that can be to the great frustration of people covering him, to the frustration of Democrats, um, the party that he leads. And I think in this moment, in particular, he really took a step to the side and said, look, Mm -hmm. Congress, you're going to do what you want, but I want to hit the ground running. He made it very clear that his priorities coming into office are, first of all, improving the vaccine rollout, which he ran on, improving the economy. He has unveiled a $1.9 trillion plan to um, be sort of the first step towards his recovery proposal. And he wants his nominations. He's going to be starting his first day in office. He is not going to have, uh, he's not on path to have any of his cabinet secretaries Um, nominated. So he 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 has been trying to focus on the future get while giving Congress space to focus on impeachment, but has not been a leader at all in that effort. And how long can that last, though, Annie? I mean, at, at some point, the reality that, you know, the Senate is going to try to do both a trial and also these hearings, that just may not work. And that's been the, the quandary with Biden for as long as I've covered him of how mm. long can he stay outside of these partisan fights. Mm. So far, he has managed. I mean, you've seen some signs. Um, there was um, news this week that Anita Dunn, one of his top advisors, is going to be going into the White House. Mm. She had initially not been doing that. And she's one of the people who's helped him, helped guide him on this path towards really focusing not on Trump and, you know, going forward, not on Trump's legacy, not relitigating that, but on sort of forward-facing issues that Americans or that he's perceived Americans care deeply about. And it's it's a very difficult thing to do. Um, when and when you're president, not, not candidate. Yeah, not exactly. The issue you brought up about a speech that uh, Joe Biden gave on Thursday, where he outlined his plans for an economic stimulus. Um, We're going to take a quick listen to a clip from that. And it's not hard to see that we're in the middle of the once in several generations economic crisis with the once in several generations public health crisis. A growing chorus of top economists agree that the moment of crisis In this moment of crisis, with interest rates at historic lows, we cannot afford inaction. It's not just that smart fiscal investments, including deficit spending, are more urgent than ever. It's that the return on these investments in jobs, racial equity, will prevent long-term economic damage, and the benefits will far out-surpass, far surpass the cost. And as you pointed out, this is a big package, $1.9 trillion. I'd like for you to help us to sort of walk through really how much Biden and the team around him has been influenced by the other crisis that defined their political careers. And that was the 2009 financial crisis in which, of course, Joe Biden was the vice president. Compare this to where... Democrats were and the administration, the Obama administration was in trying to dig out from that crisis. Oh, it's so, it's such a stunning difference. Um, it's a, a just night and day. I mean, mm-hmm. Democrats in 2009 came in um, with with this sort of um, enormous crisis on their hands, but also sort of self-limiting that they could not have a package that um, went beyond when had the the T word in it, and that, that is trillions. It was um, the the package that Democrats, you know, Obama um, supported was less than a trillion dollars. Um, and that was on purpose. This one is just shy of two trillion dollars, and this is just the first part of it. So um, there has been a sea change around Biden. Um, and what's interesting is 
Biden has many of the same economic advisors around him that um, Obama did in 2009. It's not identical, but a lot of the same folks, um, people who were maybe one level down. Um, and these many of these people have really radically changed their thinking about deficits, um, mm -hmm. about deficit spending, and about um, uh, the, what what the power of the federal government can do. Now, I, I will also say um, that circumstances have changed. The interest rates are so low that there is um, a different dynamic when you're thinking about deficit spending. But this is a, a entirely different, much bolder action than uh, than the 2009 solution. So it is fascinating. Yeah, it is. And it'll be fascinating to watch going forward, especially since so many Democrats now saying, look, you had in, in President Trump a president who had no problems running up deficits. It's going to be hard for Republicans to tag us as these folks who are just driving, driving up the deficit for no good reason. Um, Sarah, I want to go to you then about how likely it is this bill actually makes it through Congress, especially the Senate, where you need 60 votes. Democrats have 50 plus one more with vice, the vice president to break a tie. Do you think that nine or 10 Republicans are going to support $1.9 trillion? You know, the political calculation definitely changes with a Democrat in the White House. And there are some moderate Republicans who might be willing to move that way. And you also have some people further on the right who have expressed an interest in specific aspects of this bill, most notably that the two thousand dollars for Americans. Right. So it could be possible. I think having Democrats working directly with the president and having a president who's more engaged in policy changes the calculation dramatically. Mm -hmm. That's what I was wondering too, if you're you're gonna see this is the first attempt for Biden on this issue of his bipartisan uh, bona fides. But um, Sarah, we're already hearing some calls from folks on the left that if, de if Republicans don't go along, Democrats need to pull out their secret weapon, which is getting rid of the filibuster. Is that likely to happen? I don't think it is because it needs, it takes the votes of 60 senators to change the filibuster rules and getting that many Republicans on board just doesn't seem very likely at this point. Yeah. Uh, Anita, I want to talk to you then about what the expectations are for how the president's going to handle this trial coming up. He will be an ex-president coming up for trial. There's still questions about the constitutionality of, of all of this, but is he expected to put a defense forward? We've heard some rumors about lawyers and maybe even Rudy Giuliani going and, and defending him. Um, is he lobbying members of his party on this? What is this going to look like? Yeah, one of the things that's been so striking this past week is we haven't seen a real defense uh, from the president or, or many of his allies. Um, you know, on Capitol Hill, some of the Republicans they talked about this isn't the right time to do it. We didn't see as much of a, you know, a pushback as I would have expected, or certainly than what we what we saw a year ago in his first impeachment. You know, at the first impeachment, they sort of went all out. There was a team of lawyers. There was a war room. Uh, you know, they had the president had all these Republican allies all over the place. They were doing hundreds of media interviews. We really haven't seen that. And I think partly that's because the president realizes he's going to finish out the term. You know, he's got one week left. There's no trial that's going to start before then and finish before then. So he knows that's not an issue. But sure, he is talking to people. Um, you know, he does need to put on somewhat of a defense if they have this trial. He will have some attorneys. Uh, you saw him this week starting to call Republican members of the Senate to talk to them about impeachment. Uh, Lindsey Graham, the senator, uh, his friend, who sometimes uh, comes out against him, but generally an ally in the Senate, right. uh, flew with him to Texas the other day. And he talked to him about uh, talking to other senators. And you've seen Senator Graham do that, talk to other Republican senators. You've seen the president call some of those Republican senators. So I do think he's going to put on something, but it certainly won't be like last time. OK, we got to wrap it up here. Thanks to you all for joining me. Annie Linsky is a national political reporter at The Washington Post. Sarah Weyer is the congressional reporter at The LA Times. And Anita Kumar is a White House correspondent for Politico. Every president changes the presidency. After all, in our nation's history, 
only 44 men have had this job. But, and maybe this is just because we're in the middle of this moment, Donald Trump seems to have cast a bigger shadow than most. It's hard to remember a time when this president wasn't the center of attention. We've also never had a new president inaugurated with the outgoing one newly impeached and facing a Senate trial post-presidency. America's proud tradition of a peaceful transfer of power has been tarnished by a violent insurrection at our Capitol and the heavy military presence surrounding inaugural activities. To try to put this moment into context, I called up one of our favorite presidential scholars. Barbara Perry, Presidential Studies Director at UVA's Miller Center. We started by talking about the balancing act faced by politicians at the end of the Civil War, holding traitors that fought against the country accountable while also trying to heal the country. I think it's fair to point to Lincoln's second inaugural with his famous line, malice toward none, charity for all, as he looked to reunify the country as he saw the Civil War, or he hoped certainly by that time coming to an end, and it, and it would be over within a month virtually of his, of his second inauguration. Sadly, he would be assassinated just after. But he was obviously already looking down the road, and he had made that plea in this first inaugural address, that we we should be friends and not enemies, and and we must find those mystic cords of memory that tie us together and and relate to the better angels of our nature. I think because we're still in the very midst of this, Mm -hmm. that is the Donald Trump presidency, even though it is coming to an end, that I don't think we're yet looking for that peaceful ending that Lincoln could foresee and hoped for that actually mm-hmm. didn't come about because he had been assassinated. Um, so I think it's an aspiration. I find that if the aspiration would be coming from the Democrats, it would make more sense than sort of the crocodile tears of the very people who contributed to d- this disunion, that is the Republicans. And starting with Donald Trump and the birther movement, if we just we put it right to that, and then Donald Trump is a demagogue in the campaign of 2015, 2016. What do demagogues do? They divide. So we're, we're still too close to that, I think, right. for us le- legitimately to think that we could find union. But we're immediately close to what's causing us not to be unified, which is the violence incited by Donald Trump. I think that the accountability in this instance has to come first. And then let's try to unite. You know, Barbara, I don't know if you think about this. Maybe you do. I do sometimes, too, think about the Ph.D. student who's being born today. Right. <laughs> and uh, they now, uh, you know, 25 years from now, they're they're putting their thesis together. Do you think that their thesis will start with a, you know, Donald Trump was this one aberration in time as this president. And from then on, we saw X, Y, and Z uh, happen, the sort of return to normalcy that Biden has been talking about, the parties kind of regaining their hold on American politics. Or do you think their thesis will start, you know, Donald Trump was the beginning of this trend that we're still in here 25 years later? I pray every day, literally for the former, that this is an aberration that that Donald Trump and those most violently supportive of him are aberrational, or at least their coming to the fore is an aberration, and that we will get back to some semblance of uh, having a normal democratic republic. The reason I can't predict if that will come true is that Twofold, I would say. We don't know the lasting damage he has wrought upon our democratic republic, our constitutional system, our system of elections, our institutions of government. And the second unknown is even if that damage is not as bad as it might appear with our noses pressed right up to it right now and after the events of last week in particular, at the very least, I fear that he has set a pattern for future candidates rising to the fore. Because when I think pre-Donald Trump, um, Mm -hmm. I did worry about him, especially after the dear departed uh, Jim Lehrer said to us at a lunch in 2015 that he thought that Donald Trump, this was in the summer of 2015, right after Trump announced, he said, I think he could get the nomination. And my ears really perked up because I I really trusted Jim. Um, And I kept thinking, oh, no, this will be, he'll be like Herman Cain. He's someone who's completely unqualified. He's a bit of a demagogue. 
Uh, he's outrageous. He's, he's criticizing John McCain. He will quickly fall by the wayside. And when he didn't, I knew that this was a, a different animal. And, and that's the second unknown. We don't know whether this different animal will produce other animals who will relate to people and that there will always be people out there who will relate to this different and damaging animal, I think, or whether we are on a pendulum where people say, as they did about Nixon, well, we don't want another person like that. Let's have Jimmy Carter. If you also think about, you know, trying to put this question in, and I'm sure you get this question a lot about, all right, how did Donald Trump change the presidency itself, the ways in which he used Twitter as a bully pulpit, the ways in which he broke norms and things that all presidents are supposed to do. He did not follow through on those things. This direct relationship with the people is what the founders feared the most, which is why we have an electoral college, for example, because they didn't want the people directly to be swayed by a demagogue running for president and soliciting their votes. And we we had step by step up to, you know, starting with TR, Teddy Roosevelt at the turn of the 20th century, Woodrow Wilson, these presidents who thought, oh, here's a good way to lead the people. And, and they mm-hmm. thought for the good. And you could say, in most instances, they did try for the good, although we can name instances when they didn't, particularly for Woodrow Wilson. But they thought, this is how, the founders didn't anticipate that I would have this direct connection with the people, but I'll use my speeches and my rhetoric and my travels to convince the people and I will lead them that way. It starts with that. You then have obviously FDR and radio, direct communication with the people in their homes, in their cars, in their bars. Then you have John F. Kennedy uh, starting live news conferences, prime time on television. But even so, they always knew that at least publicly they should uphold the dignity of the office and they shouldn't overuse that connection with the people. And except for occasional instances of political expediency, which all politicians engage in, they didn't lie all the time. And so for Donald Trump to come along with this direct connection to the people via social media, particularly Twitter, which Mm -hmm. 24-7 links to the people and had no limits whatsoever on lies, half-truths, exaggerations, prevarications, it's hard to see where we're going to go back from that. But Hmm. the good news is, I think Joe Biden is exactly the person to try to do that. He's the Jimmy Carter following the Richard Nixon. And I know people will say, oh boy, great, now we'll have another failed president if you believe Jimmy Carter was a failed president. But the fact of the matter is, he doesn't have to be a failed president. In fact, he can be a positive force for good. Thank you so much for helping to, once again, give us some really great perspective. You are so welcome. Always my privilege and honor to speak with you, Amy. Last week, insurrectionists fueled by lies, misinformation, and conspiracy theories allowed to spread on social media platforms and encouraged by President Donald Trump himself were the catalyst for a deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. Stop the steal. The chant you just heard from rioters in D.C. became a far-right rallying cry after amassing hundreds of thousands of followers on Facebook. But how does a person go from scrolling through Twitter and Facebook or watching videos on YouTube to violently storming the seat of government? To understand the role social media plays in radicalizing people I spoke to... Kevin Roos, I'm a tech columnist for The New York Times. Social media platforms played a role in in radicalizing many of these people, but it also gave them a, a chance to sort of coordinate and and organize themselves offline. We saw that on the big networks, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. We saw that on smaller, more niche networks, um, things like Telegram, messaging apps, um, live streaming platforms. And so on the day of the uh, of the riots, we actually saw many of the people participating in it um, live streaming themselves right. um, and and posting photos, sort of performing rioting for their online audiences as well as the people around them in Washington. 
How did this happen? How did it come to be that as as you have have done so much work on that people that we talk to every day in our lives have now come to believe a lot of this stuff that is full of lies and misinformation. Yeah, that that's something I've really, I, I really think is an important point. Uh, for every, you know, QAnon influencer dressed up in costume at the Capitol, there are thousands of people sitting at their computers at home believing many of the same things. They are not as visible, but they're out there. They're the, you know, realtors and car dealership owners and, you know, elementary school teachers um, of of your and my and everyone else's towns um, who have spent the past few years being fed a diet of garbage on the internet. Um, and it's not an accident that, you know, this is all coming to a head as as Donald Trump leaves office. QAnon, one of the conspiracy theories that these people believe, um, tells that there will be a storm, that there will be a moment where patriots will rise up against the corrupt elite who they believe are leading, also leading a uh, child sex trafficking ring, and will take back the country. So this has been building to this point for a long time, and it's not the end. This is going to continue long after Trump leaves office. These people are not going to be magically convinced to come back to reality. Um, they are going to latch on to other conspiracy theories and keep promoting um, these sort of, you know, outlandish and, and frankly dangerous conspiracy theories. So many times, Kevin, in these last four years, it feels like we hit this tipping point where, okay, now things are going to change. Certainly after what we've seen means X is going to happen. Could it be that we're at that place after the, the events at the Capitol that Congress, that legislators are going to really truly dig in to getting regulation of these social platforms? Yeah, I think there's a lot of energy right now on uh, on on both sides of the aisle, frankly, for reforming social media. I think Republicans and Democrats have very different ideas about that. Republicans want to, you know, repeal legal protections under Section 230 and sort of bend the platforms to their will. Um, you know, Democrats have other ideas for how to regulate them. Um, I think something will happen as a result of this. It, it seems to be a catalyzing moment for a lot of people. But these platforms will still be around, and it may take several years for them to sort of get regulation through Congress. Um, and in the meantime, we will be living with the effects of these platforms and the people who have or organized their beliefs around them. One other thing I wanted you to, to talk about uh, was a tweet you sent out um, recently, where you said, I used to keep stories like this sent to me by listeners about their friends and relatives getting lost in a YouTube radicalization spiral in, sep in a separate Gmail folder, thinking I'd follow up on them someday. But there are just too many now. And I feel like everyone has a story about someone in their life like this. And yet it's still somewhat surprising to hear. And um, I can probably add one to your folder, too. I mean, again, people that I did not think would be believing and, and posting things on Facebook are doing it. Can you kind of get into that a little bit, too, about what you've learned as you've talked to some of these folks and tried to figure them, figure out maybe people in your own life? Yeah, I've, I've talked to uh, hundreds of people whose friends, family members, uh, spouses have been sucked into these conspiracy theories uh, on the internet. It's devastating. It's really hard to listen to. Um, you know, it almost always starts with, you know, they watched this one YouTube video and then the algorithm suggested a bunch more or they joined this Facebook group thinking they were going to get, you know, parenting advice and it turned into a thing about child sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. So it, it's happening all over the place. Um, I, I think probably at this point, everyone knows at least one person who has sort of traveled this route. And it's really hard to know what to do. Um, I think that, you know, fact checking is is important and I do a lot of it, but we're not going to fact check our way out of this. Just presenting people with better information doesn't necessarily lead them to make different choices. I think we really have to start with understanding what's bringing them into these conspiracy theory communities. Is it loneliness and social isolation? Is it a desire for 
sort of status and standing within a community. Um, and then we need to find other ways to meet those needs that are less dangerous. Mm. Because this cuts across all kinds of demographics. These are men and women. These are older people. This is this is not just one group of people that seem to be pulled into this, right? I mean, it's it is a, an incredibly diverse demographic. I have talked to millionaires who believe in these things. I have talked to people on food assistance who believe in these things. Um, it is not limited to people from one race or age bracket or tax bracket. Um, everyone in every community in, in America is is dealing with this right now. So I think it's a real mistake to pigeonhole this as you know a bunch of internet addicted losers in their mom's basement. This is happening to successful people, people with educations. Um, and I, I really think that in the next few years, we're going to see the effects of it. It's going to be too big to contain, and we're going to start seeing it everywhere. So we should really tackle this perhaps as as a health issue uh, more than just a this a, a regulatory issue. It is it is dramatically affecting the health not just of our democracy but of our families and communities. It's 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 really um, it's really making an impact in these people's lives. Which is not to say that they're you know passive victims. They they they're choosing these sources and these conspiracy theories. But I think that we have to separate the people who you know are the violent insurrectionists who do break the laws, who storm the Capitol, who obviously deserve to, uh, you know, to, to be brought to justice with the kind of people sitting at home who are not, you know, storming the Capitol with, with guns and, and, and weapons. They are just inhaling this toxic uh, conspiracy garbage all day. And I think that that those, those, that group is a, is a much bigger group, and it's one that's frankly, um, you know, we, we don't really have a plan for them yet. Kevin Roos, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. We asked you how you're dealing with relatives or friends who are sharing misinformation on social media. I'm constantly getting calls from my mom about crazy QAnon conspiracies my younger brother shares. I get questions like, were Nancy Pelosi and President Obama really arrested for rigging the election? I recently got a call from her when she was pretty scared because he was convinced that there was going to be martial law enacted due to some Facebook post he saw. Seeing him go down and be sucked into this death cult is really hard, and it's gotten to the point where we're beginning to plan to have an intervention with him. Hello, my name is Terry Zidrow and I'm from the Denver, uh, Colorado area. When I would see this dis or misinformation appearing on my feed, I, I fact-checked everyone and everything, and I would respond sending them back the fact-check or even articles from credible right-wing sometimes organization or right-center. They got very angry, and they started quipping even more dis and misinformation and began calling me quote a fact checker unquote like as if it was a dirty word hi this is alex in south weber utah i have a cousin that kept posting things that were casting doubt on covid and the death rate but they were mostly just memes so i tried asking him exactly why he doesn't believe the death rate after some back and forth he said that he knew some funeral homeowners in the city and they said that they were operating normally asking me, where are the thousands of bodies I keep hearing about? I then shared the link for the official death tracker for the city. He then blocked me. I have a friend that is a mom and she is an amazing person in every way. Um, she's a vegetarian, she's pretty liberal, women's rights and all that stuff, except for the conspiracy theories that she absolutely believes in. She's constantly talking about fake media. We try to be open with her and tell her that it's very confusing, that it doesn't resonate with us. You know, we don't want to disconnect from her because she's already disconnected. Hello, this is Tim Fogarty from Jacksonville, Florida. I'm 56 years old. And I have a friend that's about 1,300 miles away that um, I went to college with and met him there. 
And in the end, we have to make a phone call because I am not on social media. So it's about every three or four years we reach out. It's amazing how people change over time, but it's not surprising. And that's the issue I'm making today is this friend got into the coronavirus. He predicted it was fake news and that there would be a maximum of 60,000 people before herd immunity. Subsequently, that conversation kind of morphed into the Trumpism side of things and the conspiracy theories, and I'm not going to rehash them, but this person believed in every one of them. I tried to dispute it from the beginning of the conversation. I had to just stop. I would not interact anymore uh, because there was no hope. Some people have to be a part of something and have a mystical reason why it's going to take place. I don't know. Maybe someday we'll reconnect, but it sure as heck isn't going to be me making the call. I, when my friends come up with these strange theories about President Trump and pedophilia and all of that stuff, I just can't believe that I'm talking to the same person I spoke to two months ago or yesterday. It's just amazing. So I listen. I try not to get upset about it. I love them because they're my friend, but it's like they've been taken over by aliens. So I haven't really navigated very well. In recent days, we've seen social media networks take swift action to combat the conspiracy theories that led to the attack on our nation's capital. Twitter has permanently suspended President Donald Trump's account and Parler a Twitter-like platform, which has attracted many right-wing conspiracy theorists, has been dropped from both Google and Apple app stores, and Amazon suspended its web services, causing the network to go dark. I sat down with Daryl West, a senior fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution, to discuss what responsibility social media networks have here and what the appetite might be for Congress to take action. I think they have a big responsibility because even though they claim they're, they are technology as opposed to media platforms, they actually have become media platforms and people are getting a lot of news information uh, from those platforms. So I think uh, both Twitter and uh, Facebook in particular have uh, major responsibilities. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism uh, of them and, and I think uh, uh, it's deserved uh, criticism. Uh, you know, Twitter has now uh, banned uh, uh, Trump uh, from uh, his account. And I think that's the type of social responsibility that we need to start uh, thinking about. Now, obviously, freedom of speech is still important. It's part of the Bill of Rights. It's in the U.S. Constitution. We definitely have to respect that. But freedom of speech does not include the freedom to incite violence, uh, which is what I believe uh, President Trump did uh, last week. And so, uh, although it's a contentious decision on their part to deplatform him, uh, I think they were perfectly within uh, their rights. And if Trump feels that that was incorrect, and he released a video uh, making that a very point, I would say, we'll sue them. You know, let's have a lawsuit where you explain why you think you have uh, freedom of speech uh, rights here, and they can explain why they deplatformed you. And we'll see uh, what a judge says. Parler, the that conservative version of Twitter, after the Amazon Web Service suspended uh, their account, uh, Parler announced that they are going to sue Amazon because Amazon was, quote, motivated by political animus. So do you think soon enough we're going to see just how far the sort of freedom of sp speech or quelling political thought argument is going to play out legally? I think the parlor case is going to be uh, fascinating because it, it really raises all of these uh, issues. And Amazon basically said the parlor has become a site that incites violence. And so that was their justification uh, for uh, kicking it off of its uh, hosting uh, services. Parler has responded with a lawsuit saying this is an antitrust violation, uh, that Amazon is getting rid of Parler uh, because it doesn't want competition. Uh, right. And so I think it'll be a very interesting uh, case. I think it's a more complicated case than Twitter getting rid of Trump because it's different if you basically deplatform an individual and can point to specific things that uh, that person said as opposed to 
an entire social media site, there may be some individuals who were using that site to incite violence. There certainly were many others who were not. And so it's a question, can you deplatform an entire social media site when a small number might be inciting violence and others are not? So let's talk about Congress and the role that it could play. Can there be some sort of consensus on something like getting rid of this so-called liability shield section 230. Is that enough? And do you think it could actually come to pass? I mean, I posted a piece on the uh, Brookings uh, Tech Tank uh, blog this week, uh, arguing for Section 230 reform. In 1996, when Congress passed the Communications Act, it shielded internet platforms from any legal liability because, you know, technology was in its infancy uh, then. And, you know, we just wanted to see how it played out before we started to uh, regulate it. But, you know, that was almost 25 years ago. Uh, these companies now are very powerful. You know, these are not companies that are operating in somebody's uh, basement or a garage anymore. And it's clear uh, that these companies should have some uh, liability for the more egregious things that we're uh, seeing online. Uh, certainly, in using the platform to incite violence, uh, to me, the, there's a justification for removing the legal liability shield. And that way, you might make the same argument in terms of hate speech. Congress already has uh, uh, passed a bill a couple years ago on human trafficking, where they basically mm -hmm. remove the legal liability shield when the platforms are used for human trafficking. So there's a precedent for that. Uh, that legislation was passed on a bipartisan basis. So even though you're right that Republicans and Democrats have different complaints about social media these days, there actually is a tech lash out there. There's a big backlash against the technology sector that I think it's going to be possible for Congress to start to carve out some additional niches, some additional areas where they think the behavior is so egregious and so important for our society and our political system that there has to be greater accountability on the part of the social media companies. Then talk about the next piece of this. Now, Democrats are in control of Congress. We know that uh, folks like Senator Elizabeth Warren had been talking about breaking up big tech. Uh, we know that the FTC last year accused Facebook um, of you know, beating their con competitors by by buying them up. So sense of, of, of being a monopoly. Um, how is the, the this idea of an antitrust argument against big tech going to play out, do you think? I think that's going to be an area that gets a lot of attention uh, this year because, as you mentioned, uh, the Department of Justice has an ongoing lawsuit against uh, Google on antitrust uh, grounds. The Federal Trade Commission has sued uh, Facebook. Uh, many state attorney generals around the country uh, are uh, suing these uh, companies as well. And so the two issues are, one, should we break them up? which basically means uh, mergers and acquisitions that already were approved by the federal government have to be reversed. The second option is future mergers and acquisitions. Basically say, you know, we allowed you to do this five or six or seven years ago, but mm. we're not going to allow you to have large uh, mergers uh, going forward. So I'm not sure which of those routes will become the dominant one, but I do think there is growing concern about the size and power of these uh, companies. Uh, they're just so powerful over so many different uh, aspects of uh, life that I could easily envision uh, limits on future uh, mergers and acquisitions. And uh, the government either through congressional legislation or through uh, these uh, department or agency actions, may start to impose conditions. They may say, you can buy this company, uh, but then you become subject to tougher privacy laws. Uh, you have to limit data sharing. Uh, I mean, there are a variety of conditions federal agencies can attach to uh, merger approval. So uh, that could be another way that uh, we see things developing. And and so do you think a Democratic administration and a Democratic-controlled Washington looks dramatically different for movement on some of these big tech issues than it did with Trump and with Republicans in charge? 
Absolutely. I expect 2021 and 2022 to see action on a lot of fronts regarding the tech sector, just because there are so many uh, controversies in terms of the loss of privacy, cybersecurity, hacks, uh, antitrust uh, issues, uh, kind of extremism on social media platforms. Like, there are big concerns. If you look at public opinion uh, data, uh, there are substantial public concerns about this. And then legislators uh, themselves, you know, uh, many uh, uh, top uh, leaders in both parties uh, are being critical of uh, the, the large uh, companies. So I think there's going to be a lot of action on this uh, front uh, in, in the next uh, couple years. America has basically had a libertarian stance on the tech sector for the last 30 years. That era is over. Uh, we're going to move into a new era where there's more uh, public oversight, public engagement, and public regulation. There are questions over how much regulation there uh, uh, will be and should be, and people uh, disagree on you know how far we should go in that direction. But I think everybody recognizes there are lots of problems here, and as we have done with past technologies, you know when we start to see problems, you know the policy is always behind the technology, but eventually the policy starts to catch up. And I think that this year and the next few years we're going to see that in DC. Daryl West, thank you so much for coming on and and helping us to untangle this very complex issue. Thank you very much, Amy. And one more thing from me today. In the past, a party tried to quickly move on from their presidential losers. Democrats spent years trying to rebrand themselves after President Jimmy Carter's one-term tenure. There's a reason Republicans host primary debates at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, and not the Richard M. Nixon Library two hours down the road in Yorba Linda. However, at this point, a significant number of Republican members are happy to remain tied at the hip with Trump, while the rest of the party is seemingly resigned to this fact. Now, there are lots of Republicans who think that in a few weeks, they'll be back to business as usual here in Washington. After all, that's been the experience of the last four years. Nothing, it seems, not life-altering events like a global pandemic or economic collapse or the norm-busting behaviors of President Trump have made any significant dent in our country's polarization. Sure, Trump lost re-election, but it wasn't the landslide reckoning that many had expected or maybe hoped. Meanwhile, proclamations of a Republican split remain premature. The party coalesced around Trump in 2016. They did so again in 2020. It's hard to believe that Donald Trump will just fade away in 2021. But Trump leaves the White House with tremendous legal and financial liabilities. His brand, hotels, golf courses, other properties are being shunned by corporate leaders. His access to a digital bully pulpit, Twitter and Facebook has been cut off. No one knows what sort of legal actions will be taken in New York by election time in 2022. In 2016, Donald Trump revealed just how little influence the party has in not only selecting its nominee, but in defining itself. The question going forward is whether a party can continue to survive tethered to a personality instead of a platform. That's all for us today. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Jay Cowett is our director and sound designer. Sham Sundra helped us out on the board this week. Vince Fairchild is our board op and engineer. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. Thanks so much for listening. It's Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.